Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. So today, first of all, we're recording in the Sahara Desert. Okay, it is hot in here. <laughs> it is <right>? really warm. <laughs> I, and I, you know me, I like like 27 degrees in the studio when the show's going on. Yeah. But anyway, my pits are going, my forehead's going to be going shortly, <laughs> but that's all right. We're here. <laughs> we're here. And it's going to be a great show. So uh, today we're going to be talking to Demi Reader, who's an editor at The Lead and founder of 972 Magazine. And 972 just had a fascinating article basically verifying that like yes the strategy of the idf is to kill civilians to hope that the civilians flip on hamas yes and so we're going to be talking about that and uh the domestic policies of israel of course there was a poll recently that showed that only like two percent of the popular one or two percent it was 1.8 percent <clears throat> to be precise want the idf to like reel it in a little bit yeah and amazing 60 percent said they hadn't gone far enough so the domestic politics of Israel, we're going to dive into that. Everybody definitely sign up on Substack. You're going to want to see this entire interview. But before we get to that, yes, we had a, a wee bit of a debate the other day. We did, indeed. The last GOP debate. And it was also News Nation, by News the way. News Nation. Uh, moderator was Megyn Kelly and then two other women whose names I'm forgetting. So News just sorry to interject, yeah. but like— Megyn Kelly doesn't even work for News Nation. Yeah. They just brought the, her in. Well, actually, one of their journalists did, and then the other two, Megyn Kelly and the other lady, didn't. Yeah, and I think we all made history being, like, the first people to ever turn on News Nation. <laughs> the best views they ever got was when you went in there and embarrassed Leland Vitter to his face <laughs> and humiliated him, and then that got, like, a gazillion views on YouTube. <laughs> on but, my channel, though, not there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, that's true. Because their headline was dumb on They're not going to put, like, Leland Vitter gets destroyed by Crystal Ball. But, like, nobody watches News Nation, and this was such... It was a yawn fest, in a sense, because I the country didn't even know that the debate was happening. Yeah, but uh, I think it ended up being the most entertaining. I agree. Like, I don't think it accomplished anything. I don't no. think it changed anything, but I do think it ended up being the most entertaining. So let me set up some of the dynamics here. Four candidates remaining on the stage. You had Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy. So it also helps when you winnow the field down a little bit and, you know, you get the, the Asa Hutchinsons and Doug Burgums, no offense, Doug, off the stage. So you Bro, can just get the, the main my boys going at each other, right? Um, and as I said, Megyn Kelly was the moderator. I also think she was probably the best moderator of the ones that we've seen. Um, she came out of the gates with some tough questions for everybody, but clearly Nikki Haley's rise in the polls and even more critically, the fact that she has garnered much of the large donor support that Ron DeSantis was previously benefiting from and that he was hoping he would continue to benefit from um, has gotten under their skin because they were all, especially Vivek and Ron DeSantis, really coming for Nikki Haley last night. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to the donor. She will not stand up for you. She said, one of the first things I'm going to do I said we were going to get the millions I want of your bonds. Name. She wants That's government she ID to dox every American. That's she what she what? said. You can roll the tape. She said, I want your name. And that was going to be one of the first things she did in office. And then she got real serious blowback, and understandably so, because it'd be a massive expansion of government. It wasn't about the parents' rights and education bill. It was about prohibiting sex change operations on minors. They do puberty blockers. These are irreversible. Talk to Chloe Cole. She went through this. Now she's an adult. She's warning against it. She may never be able to have kids again. That is what Nikki Haley opposed. She said the law shouldn't get involved in that. And I just ask you, if you're somebody that's going to be the president of the United States and you can't stand up against child abuse, 
How are you going to be able to stand up for anything? That, that is the truth. I We're talking about that trans issue. And Nikki Haley's campaign launch video sounded like a woke Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light ad talking about how she would kick in heels. At the first debate, she said that only a woman can get this job done. That's what she said. After the third debate, when I criticized Ronna McDaniel after five failed years of leadership of this party and criticized Nikki for her corrupt foreign dealings as a military contractor, she said that I have a woman problem. Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. This is a woman who will send your kids to die so she can buy a bigger house. This is the problem. Using identity politics more effectively than Kamala Harris is a form of intellectual fraud. And it actually needs to end. There's our donor puppet masters wielding their puppet right up here tonight. This is how this game is played. The puppet masters put up their puppet, and I reject the use of identity politics in this party. And in terms of these donors that I'm are supporting me, they're just yeah. jealous. They wish that they were supporting them, but I'm not going to sit there and So she's right on that last point. I mean, Knives Out for Nikki was one of the sort of big themes of the night. What were your overall thoughts, Kyle? Um, I mean, I think she kind of got hammered into the ground, and she tried to do this whole, like, I'm above the fray type thing. There was mm. one moment where they were like, Nikki, what's your response to what Vivek just said? And she's like, I'm not going to respond. Right. And I just don't think she did an effective job because they were really gunning for her hard. And look, the argument of like, you're taking Koch brothers money, like the billionaires came in. Yeah, it's true that the others want that money and they didn't get it. But the audience doesn't know that. And holding up the sign, Nikki is corrupt. And uh, when she tried to deflect allegations of like making money off defense contractors and all that stuff, she just sort of admitted, like, I, in fact, I quoted it yesterday on Twitter, like, I'll t we'll take money from whoever we can get money from. Mm. And I just don't, like, it's it's sort of old school politics, and I feel like uh, DeSantis and uh, Vivek sort of harnessed the the anti-establishment feelings on the right a hell of a lot better than, than Nikki did. And also, by the way, I, I looked at the polls. She's still a little bit down to DeSantis overall. Yeah. She had a big surge, but she's still down a little bit to DeSantis overall. Um, and I think, and I'm curious what you think of this, that... Um, everybody had a decent night, kind of except Nikki. I think she was the only one who uh, had a poor night. I, I feel like you always feel like Ron DeSantis did better than I feel like Ron DeSantis did. I only had one moment where I thought he did, did, handled it poorly. I mean, I, there was nothing that I could point to that I'd be like, that was a disaster. But I also felt like from the jump, he was very uncomfortable. DeSantis? Yes. I felt like he knows that this is the last debate. His campaign is effectively facing an existential threat from the fact that the donor class is going to Nikki. Because remember, he decided to run his campaign in this different way, where rather than taking in funds directly to his campaign, he was going to use these super PACs. We're going to run his ground operation and his um, TV ad operation, all of that. And that was dependent on having millions and millions of dollars flowing into those super PACs from the billionaire class, which is now basically all thrown in with Nikki Haley. So even though she's behind him in the polls a little bit still, although not in New Hampshire, where she's beating him at this point, um, he feels this is an existential threat he knew coming in he needed to go after her aggressively and what we've seen in the first debates is he was more comfortable sitting back and letting everybody else go to war with each other than he is actually affirmatively going on the offense so i thought he felt uncomfortable and off his game i thought nikki felt uncomfortable and off his game off her game vivek 
is Vivek. He's very skilled rhetorically, but people just don't like him. So it's weird because I'm like, I guess he had a good night, but do I think that that's going to make more people like him? No, not really. I don't think it really changes anything. Chris Christie by far had his best debate performance that he's had, you know, in any of these. He actually showed up to this debate. He had some good moments. I thought he had a moment at the beginning where he sort of like called out the absurdity of them all debating as if one of them is going to be the nominee when Trump is beating all of them by massive amounts in every single poll. I thought that was a good moment of truth telling. But again, sort of like Vivek, where, you know, they don't like him like for his personality. Like they don't like Chris Christie because he's anti-Trump. So even though he had a good night, it's not like it really amounts to anything. So on DeSantis, we definitely have a disagreement because he didn't come across as desperate to me. I agree that he was more aggressive than he was in previous debates, but he's got such like a boring personality that even when he gets aggressive, it doesn't feel like it's over the line. I just felt like he felt nervous. I mean, he's Ron DeSantis. He's he's got like the weirdest faces in the world. He sits there. He doesn't know how to just exist. His smiles are super weird. Everything's so forced. Everything about his body. Everything. Yeah. Wooden man. And there was that moment where uh, people were on Twitter saying it looks like he's powering down in between answers. He was sitting there like this, standing there like that. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. It didn't come across as desperate to me. There's only one moment where I thought DeSantis really did poorly. I think it was in some back and forth with Chris Christie. And Chris Christie was like, you won't answer a direct question yeah. answer the question and then instead of answering the direct question he kept trying to like bs his way around it that was DeSantis's worst moment in my opinion um but to underline something you said yeah that chris christie moment was really interesting where he jumped in at one point i think it was the first question they asked mm-hmm. him and he's like what are we doing up here we're putting on some weird kabuki theater type play where we're pretending like this matters these guys are all treating trump like voldemort right. he who shall not be named when he's beating all of you so, yeah, you say, oh, my poll numbers aren't doing that well. Well, it's because I'm telling the truth, and sometimes people don't want to hear the truth. And the fact of the matter is this guy's crushing all of us, and that's a disaster for the Republican Party. So, overall, yeah, I think uh, Christy Def, I agree with you, he had his most uh, powerful night. Um, I think Vivek, is, like you said, is Vivek. He's you either like him or you hate him, and more people hate him, right? And yeah. even though he had a good, uh, a good night, he does come across, like Chris Christie said at one point, as the world's most arrogant blowhard. And I, I think Nikki did the worst, and I think DeSantis did okay and held his own. But again, the point you always make, I think, is the most important here. None of this matters. None of this matters. Like, this doesn't... <laughs> it's always important to keep oh, that in perspective. <laughs> oh, the polls move three percentage points for Senator McFuckface. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? It doesn't mean anything. Like, what are we even doing here? Yes, correct, correct. Uh, you referenced the point, uh, Chris Christie getting into it with Vivek and calling him like the most arrogant blowhard on the planet or whatever he said. This was over an exchange on Ukraine where initially Vivek is going after Nikki and saying, you want to send people over to die in this country. You can't even name three regions of it, three oblasts in it. And she has a sort of blank face reaction. Chris Christie comes in over the top. It's a relatively lengthy exchange, but let's take a listen to a bit of it. It takes an outsider to see this through. Look at the blank expression. She doesn't know the names of the provinces that she wants to actually fight for. And there's her puppet masters right there. The donors. The donors right there that are playing like the puppet masters. Let me just say something here. You know, his reasonable peace deal in Ukraine, he made it clear. Give them all the land they've already stolen. Promise Putin you'll never put Ukraine in Russia. And then trust Putin not to have a relationship with China. Let me tell you something. That's no that's reasonable. That's not my deal. That's that, not my yeah, deal yes, Chris. it's exactly what I'll, you said. You do this at every debate. I'll, just, I'll you exactly say, what no, 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 Don't interrupt me. I didn't interrupt you. Okay? You tell say this. You, you do this. You do this at every debate. You go out on the stump and you say something. 
all of us see it on video, we confront you on the debate stage, you say you didn't say it, and then you back away. And I want to say what, exactly no, what I, I said, Chris. I'm not I'm done yet. Well, this now is... Now look, this is, and this is not a spear. This is not a spear this is the fourth debate, the fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So shut up for a while. I'm going to respond to that. I'll take that. I want to say something else. We're now 25 minutes into this debate, and he has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence, not her positions. Her basic intelligence. So there you go. What'd you make of that exchange? I mean, that was kind of the Chris Christie that I thought we would get in all of these debates, and he finally showed up for this one. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I have I have uh, mixed feelings on it because on the substance of this one, I definitely agree more with Vivek. Same. Um, but in terms of how it played out, I don't know. I'm actually kind of split. Uh, Chris Christie definitely has the more dominating personality, and he certainly landed that line about uh, Vivek being the most obnoxious blowhard in America. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just to go through it, so the line, she can't name three provinces in eastern Ukraine that she wants to go send our troops to fight and die for. That's true. Mm -hmm. Like, that's absolutely accurate. Yeah, and you can see on her face, she's like, fuck. Because if she, if, she, if she knew, she would have just chimed in and said provinces. Yeah. But she didn't do it. Yeah. Right? So, and by the way, this is Neocon 101. Like, back during the Iraq War, like, do you think that George W. Bush had a good understanding of Iraq and where the Shia are and where the Sunni are and where the Kurds right. are and who we're aligned with? And like, they don't know. This right. is what the neocons do. It's like bomb now, ask questions later. Yep. So totally right on that. Um, what it did annoy me with uh, what Vivek said is at one point he keeps doing this Trump line. And like we all saw the Trump line in 2016. Oh, all the people making the noise for Nikki. They're her donors right there. It's like, we got it. We got it. You're a Trump sycophant. Come up with your own original stuff. It's enough. This is like the third time he's done it. It's so obnoxious. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, it's probably true. It, it seemed like Nikki, <laughs> Nikki did pack the audience. But like, I just, Vivek's whole shtick of like being the most sycophantic to Trump is just, it, it's so, it's so soulless. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you're clearly posturing for something, a position in the administration or something, you know, a show afterwards, something, right? Um, then... Chris Christie, like, he comes into White Knight for Nikki Haley, and he basically says, like, any deal with Russia and Ukraine is unacceptable. And it's like, okay, well, come live in the fucking real world, right? Like, of course, we would all like to be able to say, Ukraine, you keep 100% of your land. Russia, you get out and accept defeat with a smile. But we live in the real world. And, like, you're going to have to do—it's like with, uh, with Israel and Palestine. If we get a deal, there's going to be a million parts of the deal that people on both sides are not happy with. Right. But that's the real world. And so he acts like it's absurd to have the position that, you know, there's got to be some sort of negotiated settlement and maybe Russia gets to keep Crimea in this situation, which they've held since fucking 2014 or something. He just acts like any deal is absurd. It's not the terms of the deal. It's like any deal at all. He would say that's your t too much to Russia. Right. right. So that annoyed me. Um, and then the final point is— uh, when he says, you insulted her basic intelligence, uh, Christie says that to Vivek. No, I don't agree. That was absolutely substantive. That was absolutely like, okay, if you want to go send people to fight and die here, name where they're going. And she can't do it. So I don't think that that's like insulting. I, I do think Vivek and Nikki hate each other, and, and they would insult each other's intelligence, yeah. but that actually was policy-related. That's true. And it's not only policy-related, it's kind of devastating because she also loves to use her experience at the U.N., 
um, and as governor of South Carolina to claim that she has all this experience and she specifically has all of this foreign policy experience. And so for him as an outsider to be able to land this blow of like, she doesn't even know the basics of what she's talking about. So when we're talking about experience, like experience at what? Yeah, Hillary Clinton had experience. Exactly. And what did that give us? Exactly. And many people in Washington have experience and it's experience doing horrific things that we don't want them to do anymore. So I thought it was effective from that perspective as well. In terms of who won the exchange, I think it actually served both Vivek and Chris Christie well. You know, if you are someone who views the Ukraine war as Vivek does, and, you know, I certainly am closer to his views than I am to the neocons, Nikki Haley or Chris Christie or Ron DeSantis, frankly, on a lot of these things, um, then you probably thought, you know, Vivek did well on that. If I mean, Chris Christie's constituency is very limited, but I thought he showed a lot of forcefulness there and certainly landed the most accurate blow of what people don't like about Vivek in the exchange. So overall, I thought it was a wash and good for both of them and very diminishing for Nikki in general, because not only do you have the specter of her clearly not knowing the three regions and like with a look on her face like fuck what do i do here but then it's also like she needed christy to come help for christy to come in over the top and like have to rescue you like some little damsel in distress that's yeah little, not so a great feeling i don't look. know if we <laughs> had this video but there was a line that was even more devastating i think from vivek against nikki do we have the video or no where the lipstick on the pig no we don't okay have that so one. then i'll tell everybody what it is at one point uh vivek says to nikki you could put lipstick on a pig it's still oh uh, no or no you could put lipstick on Dick Cheney. Yeah. It's still a neocon fascist. That's what he said. <laughs> and I was like, hot damn, son. That, I mean, it's true, right? She does have yeah, Dick Cheney's politics. in real time to that I one. was like, yo, that's <laughs> crazy. That's a strong line. But I will also say, and this is the thing that's so annoying about Vivek, is that even when he's right, he's wrong, is that you're sucking up to Trump, who's also a neocon. Right. He hired John Bolton. He hired Gina Haspel. He increased the drone war over 400 percent. He still kept us in Iraq. He still kept us in Afghanistan. He's tried to coup Venezuela. Like, I can go down the list, guys. It's a, he killed a top Iranian commander who was in the field fighting ISIS, de facto acting as the Air Force for ISIS. And you love Trump, but you hate these other people on the stage. Again, it's just like Vivek doesn't actually have any positions. He just has like postures to virtue signal to the audience he's currently mm. trying to virtue signal to mm. well you made the point about how he's decided the lane is to be like the biggest trump sycophant correct that was on display last night and you know that it's an adopted position because in his book he talked about how horrified he was by January 6th, and the language about that was very different. And then last night, he trots out, trots out like, January 6th is an inside job and this whole string of, like, do we Do we have theory. that clip or no? We don't have okay. that one, now. Well, okay. By the way, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, wait a second. Vivek is right, just not in the way he thinks. Yeah, 9, uh, 9 was an inside job. Uh, January 6th <laughs> was an inside job. January 6th was an inside job because— Trump was the one orchestrating the attempt yeah. to overthrow so the government. So it was. He, he was the president. I know that's yeah. not what he means, but he's technically right, just in the exact opposite way that he, I don't know, what well, he, Joe ever, Biden orchestrated, Antifa orchestrated, what's it, he saying? Yeah, it, I think their, their theory, like the Ray Epps, the FBI orchestrated it. Oh, they're saying flag, deep, right, deep state trying to make Trump look bad or yeah, something? Or I, I can guarantee you in the future, if he does like a liberal turn, is trying to get a CNN commentator job, he will use that exact rationalization that you said, like, no, Oh, I'm I meant Trump about, did it, yeah. Trump was in 
inside job. That's what he was doing there. Um, so we have this other moment from Chris Christie that was interesting where he really, this was the part that you thought Ron DeSantis didn't do well in, that this was his oh, interesting. We moment have that of one. the night, where Christie kind of called him on this a few times of like, this dude never actually answers the question. And he really got him at this moment when the moderators had asked Ron DeSantis, is Trump fit for office? And DeSantis tries to spin and say something vague about generational change. And Christie really nails him on it. Take a listen. Why doesn't he just answer the question? The question was very direct. Is he fit to be president or isn't he? The rest of the speech is interesting, but completely non-responsive. And if we were in a courtroom, they'd strike the answer and say, Governor DeSantis, no, they you're, a smart, they would say that you're a smart they would man. Argue that the, no, they would. No, they wouldn't, They would Chris. strike the answer no, they because you're not answering you it. Just is he don't fit? Like, you is have he your, fit? You have no. your thing. Is he you fit or isn't he? No, I don't have my thing. We don't, He's the thing. Is he fit or isn't he? We do not want to do someone that's almost about him being 80. 80 years old. It doesn't mean that somebody is he couldn't fit? get elected. That's Ron? not even the people that... Governor DeSantis, let him fit. Ron, is he fit or isn't he? No, Governor DeSantis, Ron, is he fit? I think we have an opportunity to do somebody who is in the primary. Right. Yes. You don't have to no worry talking. about no. all this I'm stuff with Ron. Stop. We can get it done. Stop. We'll do it. I'm going to come to you. Finish. Look, Father Time is undefeated. I don't know how he would score on a, on a test, but I know this. We have an opportunity to nominate someone and elect someone for two terms who's going to be spitting nails on day one and for eight years so deliver you, you big results. We should think. not nominate somebody he won't who's, answer. Who's, who's, who's almost 80 years old. Okay. He's afraid to answer. No, I'm not. He got he got him good there. And he went back to this refrain a few times. And it reminded me a little bit. It wasn't as powerful, but a little bit of the moment he had famously with Marco Rubio, where he's like, right, you know, yeah. called look, him out he broke. For, he broke down. He keeps saying the same thing. Calls him out for using these talking points. And Marco Rubio just goes back and uses the same talking points. And you had that dynamic with Ron DeSantis, where he was able to call him out multiple times for like, you just answer won't answer the freaking question. And also this underlying very clear and very unbecoming dynamic of you're terrified of Donald Trump. You're terrified to say what you actually think about this. And man. so the, the other moment where he wouldn't answer the question and Christie called him on it was when they were asking if they would send U.S. troops to Gaza. And DeSantis totally dodged it. And but by the way, it's interesting because. I don't know. It, maybe it's something about DeSantis' boring personality, but when he dodges a question, I actually sense it less than I do with the other ones. Something about the lack really? of charisma makes me think, oh, it's like he's sort of directly answering it, even though in retrospect, you're like, he didn't answer that at all. Yeah. So Christie caught him and called him out on that uh, exact same way he did here. But here's my question for you, because this is what I was... Uh, I'm a little split on this. Okay. So DeSantis is... He's refusing to take the bait to directly attack Trump, but he's doing like... Uh, a more roundabout way of attacking Trump of just like, hey, man, I'm not saying anything other than that homeboy's kind of old and maybe we should go with the younger generation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so my question to you is, do the hardcore Trump people hear that and think, well, I don't care that you're not attacking him directly. You're still attacking him. So fuck you. Or do they uh, sort of accept the nuance that, oh, DeSantis is less bad than Christie because Christie hates our boy Moyer and goes after our boy Moore, whereas DeSantis is being a little more artful with yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, they definitely hate him less than Christie. But what they really want to hear is what Vivek would say, which is like, of course he's fit. He's amazing. It was a great president. You yeah, know? So, then, so then, look, this gets back to the core problem for DeSantis and for everybody else. Yeah. There is no, there's not even a tightrope for you to walk. There's nope. no rope. There's there is, nothing there. There is nothing there. There is nothing there. And... 
you know, DeSantis has tried a few different things. He tried, like, look at the scoreboard, basically, like, I'm a winner, he's a loser. Well, at this point, you look at the polling, Trump looks pretty strong for re-election. So the electability argument, not really going to land. And I don't even see him really making that argument anymore. No, he still does. He still does. In interviews, I've heard him say if if Trump gets the nomination, Biden's going to get another four years. But I don't think, like, I don't even believe that at this point. Me you too, know? yeah. Agreed. I mean, I, uh, anybody, and I don't know that that was ever that salient a concern for the Republican electorate, but now they're looking at the polls. They're like, a toaster oven could be Joe Biden right now. Like, we can nominate whoever we that want. That is what and they we think, we want yeah. Trump. Yep. So um, that argument does not work whatsoever. And so he, and I think Nikki, too, try some version of like, well, he made good promises and he had good ideas, but he wasn't really able to deliver. I'll be able to deliver. But the problem with that is the Republican base also doesn't believe that. Like, they feel like, and they were told by people like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and Chris Christie, by the way, at the time, that actually his years were incredible success, that he was incredibly effective. He was able to accomplish, you know, promises made, promises kept, et cetera, et cetera. So if you've been feeding that to the Republican base for all these years, you can't then turn around on the dime and be like, no, actually, he was very ineffective and I'll be effective. It's like, well, we don't actually think that. We think, based on not only our belief, but on what you people have been telling us, that he was fantastic. So we're not really buying this either. Yeah, I mean, I think it's even simpler than that. I think it's just vibes. I think it's just we like the guy. Uh, he pisses off the right people. And we and just have a soft fired, spot for him. we got to defend him. We just have a soft spot for him. So I think it's like super base level, instinctual, gut. Like it's a total vibes election, in my opinion. Let me ask you this question about DeSantis, because I described earlier the moment his campaign is in, even as he holds on by his like fingertips to the second place positioning, he really is facing kind of an existential moment with regard to his campaign because of there's all these reports about his super PACs and chaos and this one's out and that one's out and this one's warring with that one and this one hates the other one and they're blaming them for a bad ad strategy and whatever. Clearly, things are not going well over there. The Cokes endorse Nikki, Paul Ryan endorse Nikki. There's a donor stampede into Nikki's corner. Do you think that he actually makes it to the Iowa caucuses? I mean, I have no idea. It's up to him and his team if he wants to keep going. I, I will say this, though. If I was him, yeah, I would hang in there until there's absolutely no hope and no path. Because you are dealing with a guy with 91 criminal charges against him who's the front runner by a mile and a half. So there is a scenario where he's just taken off the field because he's behind bars. And so in that scenario, then you have Nikki Haley versus Ron DeSantis. And on that one, and I know you might disagree with me on this one, on that one, I definitely think DeSantis wins over Nikki Haley. I think probably. Yeah, I think probably DeSantis would win in that. But on the other hand, he is very dependent on this donor network, which is now clearly coalesced behind Nikki. And Republicans don't have a kingmaker in Obama the way that Democrats did, who, you know, caused all the chips to fall the when they needed to fall, Pete Buttigieg, et cetera, in order to anoint Joe Biden. But he could there could definitely be a coalescing of donors and a coordinated behind the scenes pressure campaign to get him to drop because they're not fools. They know that you need one Trump alternative. You need everybody to coalesce around one Trump alternative. They've decided that Trump alternative is Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis's political and private life future, like whatever he goes out and does in the private sector, is dependent on this particular class of people. So it's not like they don't hold sway with him. But at this point, it's not even a question. If Trump is still in the race, he's going to win. It's over. So it's not even a question of that. It's a question of what does a potential Trump in prison world look like? Mm. And in that scenario, I think DeSantis is smart enough to see that 
and think like if I just hang in there until then, because look, the Republican base is a little different. Like those attacks over Nikki Haley taking big donor money yeah. and being corrupt, that works. So it doesn't matter that she has all these uh, big money donors behind her. If the base looks at you and is like, fuck you, I don't trust you, then they're not going to vote for her. They're going to vote for one of the other people, whether it be Vivek or DeSantis. I think more likely DeSantis. And so it's a different scenario from the Democratic Party, where when the big money interests coalesce behind somebody and the kingmakers step in and declare that this is the person, the Democratic base, like lemmings, are like, okay. Okay. Whereas on the Republican side, they're like, whoever you're trying to shove down my throat, no, that's not happening. Yeah. So I do think it's a little bit of a different scenario. I think that uh, the only reason everybody else stays in this race is if Trump goes to prison, I'm waiting in the wings. Because outside of that, it's mission impossible. It's totally hopeless. It's right. It doesn't seem to me, though, like the donors really believe it's mission impossible. It seems to me like yeah, they but they're idiots. think it's a chance. Yeah, but they but were wrong in 2016. I know, I know. But what I'm saying is if they're the ones that are applying the pressure and sort of the, the puppet masters behind the scenes, as Vivek Ramaswamy said, they're the ones applying the pressure and creating the landscape. They're not thinking of it in terms of, well, if Trump goes to prison, maybe, you know, maybe there's a shot. They're thinking of it in terms of maybe we've got a shot if there's only one Trump alternative and, you know, everybody else drops out and we just all go all in for Nikki Haley. So that's why I feel like there could be pressure being applied to Ron DeSantis. There right could now be. To drop. But if he was smart, he would just ignore it, I think. And then you just hope, wait and see and hope Trump goes to prison. Yeah. That's his that's his best that bet. That is his best yeah. bet. All right. We have one more moment of why Nikki Haley is the I don't know if she's the absolute worst, but she's one of the absolute worsts um, on the Republican side. She is arguing that she wants to change the definition so that every government, every school has to acknowledge that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Real authoritarian turn here. Let's take a listen. If this had been the KKK that was doing protests on those campuses, every one of those college presidents would have been up in arms. This is just as bad. The idea that they would go and allow that kind of pro-Hamas protest or agree with the genocide of Jews and try and say that they needed context on that, there is no context to that. This is what we need to do to deal with it. First of all, we have got to get foreign money out of our universities. You've got Arab money, you've got Chinese money, you've got others. We need to go to every university and say you either take foreign money or you take American money, but the days of taking both are over. The second thing we need to do... The second thing we need to do is we need Biden made a mistake not including anti-Zionism in the definition of anti-Semitism. If you don't think that Israel has a right to exist, that is anti-Semitic. We will change the definition so that every government, every school has to acknowledge the definition for what it is. She then goes on to claim that, quote, for every 30 minutes someone watches TikTok, every day they become 17% more anti-Semitic. More pro-Hamas, too, she goes on to say. <laughs> so if you watch TikTok for 30 minutes, at the end of it, you're going to be like, God, 17... Allahu Akbar! Only 17%, I love Hamas! Though. Only, <laughs> only 17%, but if you watch for an hour, look out, that number's going to tick up and up and up, and you're going to end and be like, you know, Goebbels had a point. <laughs> When you're done watching, like, okay, look, this is, first of all, that's the most boomer shit I've ever heard in my life, that that TikTok thing. Like, you hopped on a short bus to Boomerville. Like, that is fucking psycho. Second of all, 
This is the exact shit that people on the right used to go after people on the left for mm -hmm. all the time. This, oh my God, you guys see racism and sexism and misogyny and transphobia around every corner, and you want to have a, you know, a, a pampered little safe room where you don't hear any opinions that you disagree with, and you want to shut down everybody and censor anybody who has an opinion. That's different than yours. You're too quick to call people bigoted and xenophobic, and now they're like. This is my calling card. I'm going to do the exact same tactics only when it comes to anti-Semitism uh, and, and anti-Zionism. Now, by the way, we have to address that. That's the main point. That's the elephant in the room. Yeah. You have Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox, anti-Zionist Jews. Are they anti-Semitic? Are the most Jewish Jewish people on earth anti-Semitic? Because according to their definition, they say it. And by the way, you could have Christian Zionists. Yes. And some of those Christian Zionists explicitly believe that the rapture is going to happen and most of the Jews are going to burn in hell for eternity and only a small percentage of them are going to be converted to Christianity. So what about the Christian Zionists? What about uh, John Hagee who said Hitler was sent from God? He's a Zionist. Is he not anti-Semitic because he's a Zionist? This is so stupid. This is like saying if you criticize Saudi Arabia, you're Islamophobic. Right. What are you talking about? It's a government and they commit human rights abuses. That's why we're criticizing them. Yep. And it's the same thing if you're anti-Zionist. Zionism is just belief in an official Jewish state. That's all it is. Yeah. So even if you say, hey, there should be a state for Jews, but it's not a Jewish state because a Jewish state denotes either an ethno state or a theocracy or both of those things. Yeah. Yeah, I'm against ethno states and theocracies. I believe in secular democracy. That used to be called common sense. Yeah. That used to be called the most American position you can imagine. But now they cuck themselves. Oh, my God. I, okay. So I did want to um, bring up also the line about look at all this Arab money and this Chinese money into the universities. Let's change that quote and see how people like Nikki Haley would react. Look at all this Jewish money coming into the universities. Mmm, mm, sounds a little bigoted now, doesn't it? But when you flip it on Arabs or Palestinians or Muslims or Chinese people, all of a sudden she's like, I don't, I don't see a problem at all. And these guys are cheering on. I don't know if you've been seeing this. Now there's all these press conferences with these like pampered little prick Harvard students yes. who are saying, they're saying, I didn't feel safe because somebody said from the river to the sea in a protest. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, I can't, I can't stand you idiots because obviously some pink-haired college kids saying from the river to the sea, they don't mean genocide the Jews. That's not what they mean. That's not what they mean. They mean they want a one-state democratic rights for all in the region. Call it Israel if you want. Call it Palestine if you want. Make it binational. Call it Israel-Palestine. They're saying end the occupation, end the apartheid. That's it. That's it. Yes, when a Hamas person says from the river to the sea, they may mean genocide the Jews. When it... 20-year-old student at Berkeley says it. They don't mean it the way Hamas means it, you absolute liars. And this is what I can't stand. Everything is so dishonest in this conversation. Well, it's, it's so dishonest. It's such an obvious distraction, too. Of the killing of Palestinian babies, yes. The babies and children being massacred. They don't want to talk about the ethnic cleansing. They don't want to talk about the geopolitical potential instability and possibilities of World War III. Like, they don't want to talk about that. So let's actually invent things that college kids aren't even saying. I mean, that's the other thing is when they get up there and they're talking about, oh, they're calling to genocide the Jews. They don't even say what the people are actually saying. Correct. They just say, like, oh, the chant made me feel unsafe. And so it's such an obvious distraction, number one. Number two, just as if you throw racism around, you throw sexism around, if you use the word too much and use it when it's not actually applicable, then it becomes meaningless. 
And then when there is genuine anti-Semitism. Like Elon Musk, there for example. Plenty of, yeah. yes, Elon Musk as one example. Then it doesn't carry any weight. And the institutions like the ADL that are supposed to have this moral clarity and all of this weight and credibility when it comes to calling out anti-Semitism, no one's going to take what you have ser- have to say seriously when you're going after like Thomas Massey for a Drake meme or when you're conflating criticism of a foreign government with anti-Semitism. It's that's part of what to me is so utterly disgraceful and disingenuous about this entire conversation. And then the layer of hypocrisy is so enragingly brazen and obvious that it's insane. If it had been a college kid, a black college student, a trans college student who was doing these same press conferences about how they felt unsafe from a rhetoric or poster or protest or whatever, Republicans like Nikki Haley would be laughing their asses off, mocking them as snowflakes, saying, oh, you need your safe space. Like you're it's like they just turn on a dime with apparently zero self-awareness and have now embraced that entire ideology of words are our actual violence and we must protect them and we must codify them and berating these university presidents to be more censorious on college campuses when three seconds ago they were in the exact opposite position. This is no different than a conservative on a college campus saying, I'm against affirmative action. And then having the left call a press conference to explicitly say, this is dangerous racism that puts my life in danger. This is making us unsafe. This is making us unsafe. Because the examples that are actually happening are from the river to the sea, which as I just described, means many different things in different contexts. It's different when a 20-year-old American says it versus a freaking Hamas person, right? And the other thing they're angry about is intifada, when people call for an intifada. Well, intifada roughly translates to rebellion, okay? That could just mean fight back to end the occupation, right. fight back to end apartheid. It could mean fight back nonviolently, like the Great March of Return in Gaza. Right. They're just pretending, no, they mean kill all the Jews. Even in the in the first intifada in particular, but in the second as well, but overwhelmingly the actions that were taken were nonviolent. So, but you know what, even if they were calling in a protest, I don't wouldn't support or condone this at all, but in a protest for actual violence, if it's just speech, and it's not targeted directly against a student, then even that is protected First Amendment speech, which is something that a minute ago conservatives claimed to be absolutists on. We just had Nazis protest literally outside of Disney World. And yes, we took note of it and we were like, wow, this is crazy. These people are hateful. But you know what? It's called the First Amendment. And cops were not sent in there to bust them up. Jackbooted thugs were not sent in there to bust them up and haul them away to prison. And that's an example of actual anti-Semitism. Actual, yeah, actual real bigotry, etc. But like, that's the way this country works. Instead, they're calling press conferences and whining like little bitches. And Nikki Haley is more than happy to get up there and say she compared left wing protesters for Palestinian rights to the KKK. <laughs> Piss off. Piss off. Yeah. And the Biden White House plays into this crop. A bunch of Democrats play into this crop. They were going after Thomas Massey for that meme. Chuck Schumer going after Thomas Massey for that meme. Condemning Pramila Jayapal because she said her rape was horrific, but I guess she let's didn't say Let's be balanced it. in our criticism. She didn't say it hard enough. Yeah, because they were mad because she said, let's be balanced in our criticism. And they were like, but Israel has never raped any Palestinians. Meanwhile, cue the news stories that are endless. Where I covered one the other day. 13-year-old Palestinian boy raped uh, by an IDF 
IDF member. The State Department learned about it, saw it was credible, went to the Israeli government, said, hey, there's a 13-year-old who was raped. You guys need to do an investigation or do something about the guy who did it. What did Israel do in response? They went to the charity, which blew the whistle, and shut it down. And labeled them terrorists. Labeled them terrorists. That's just one example. Talk to any of the Palestine, political uh, prisoner Palestinians. They have some horror stories, too. So when Pramil Jayabal says, hey, uh, Hamas's uh, sexual violence, evil, wrong, terrible, horrific. But let's be balanced on our criticism here and also have concern for Palestinian human lives. And that's that's a that's a scandal. Fuck off. Fuck off. And at a time when made in America bombs, 2000 pound bunker buster bombs are being dropped on schools and apartment buildings and refugee camps and children are being massacred by the thousands. And we're having a theoretical debate about what college kids didn't even say on college campus. Somebody's feelings were hurt. Some Harvard asshole's feelings were hurt. We're having a round of condemnations and multiple days of a news cycle about whether or not Pramila Jayapal is for rape or not. I mean, it's just the naked nature of the attempt to distract and have some crazy shiny object over here. It's such a sign of what a country in decay and decline we are that we can't even, our elected elite officials can't even keep their eye on the ball of freaking ethnic cleansing on its way to a genocide to focus on that. No, they'd rather debate speech on college campus that didn't even actually happen. All right, we got to get to our guest. Okay, so let's bring in Israeli journalist Demi Reeder. He is editor at The Lead and founder of 972 Magazine. Let's get to it. Demi Reader, welcome. Great to have you. Thanks for having me on. So in addition to the things that we just mentioned to our audience editor at The Lead, founder of 972 Magazine, you said you're just launching a substack that you're calling 2048. Explain the uh, the genesis of that title and what you want to explore there. Well, 1948 was the uh, event that Israelis think of as the War of Independence and Palestinian uh, experiences the Nakba. Um, I think 20, 2048 will be 100 years from that. It also happens to be 25 years from now. Um, and given that it's pretty widely agreed that the prospects of settling this conflict anyway have moved back a generation, 25 years is accounted as a generation, let's start thinking towards that timeline. So let's dig into that a little bit. What is the reason that you see and why you would say that the uh, resolution of this conflict has been moved back a generation? I think it's um, it was always going to be a pretty long-term conflict. You know, we've had um, over the years since um, the Oslo Accord, we've had periodic American presidents or Israeli prime minister come to power and say, uh, we, we're going to settle this issue. We're going to call a summit. We're going to get another peace agreement. And conflicts don't really work like that. Um, so it was always going to take years and years of work. Um, and some of that work isn't even happening anyway. I think the shock of what happened on October 7th and what happened has been happening since has really, really pushed back um, even moderate support for a moderate kind of peace agreement, and not to mention the kind of peace agreement that would be needed to address the deeper issue of the conflict. So I saw a, a poll the other day where I, I want to say roughly 2% of the population of Israel thinks the IDF has gone too far in its bombing campaign, mm -hmm. in its reaction to October 7th. Um, is that, do you think that's uh, truly indicative of the sentiment on the ground? Is it kind of like a post 9-11 in the U.S. type feel where it's just sort of mind off, very emotional, just like react, react, react? 
Yeah, I would say so. I don't know if it's 2% or maybe slightly higher. And these questions are also kind of like, you know, being, like you say, being asked a question in wartime is not the same as being asked a question sometime after the war. I think it, primarily what it shows is that targeting civilians doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work for Israel uh, when it goes to war in Lebanon or in Gaza in terms of persuading Palestinians to uh, change tack, to um, elect or install a more conciliatory leadership. It doesn't work in Israelis either. Um, you target civilians. People want retribution. People want to be kept safe. And they don't especially, um, they don't have necessarily have time for um, how roughly uh, is this going to be done so long as they are kept safe. Um, secondly, it's important to remember that the Israeli media barely covers what's happening to Gazans. Mm. Uh, it barely does that anyway, even in normal times. Uh, there are no Israeli reporters on the ground in Gaza. There haven't been since Hamas threats um, have forced uh, Mira Haas, uh, the phenomenal Haaretz journalist, to evacuate Gaza um, from her on her last visit, I don't even remember what year that was. It must have been more than, definitely more than a decade. And then um, Israel kind of like exists on a different timeline or in a different timescape from Gazans and from the rest of the world. Because in Israel, while we are not getting much of what is happening in Gaza, we're getting uh, more and more and more details about what happened on October 7th. So in some ways for Israelis, October 7th happens every day anew. Um, and that obviously um, increases kind of like, it keeps people in that state of like, we need retribution, we need to be made safe. And what they're not realizing is that Israel has already exacted massive unprecedented retribution on uh, both Hamas, but especially on Gaza civilian population, but they're not seeing that. So they're still in that mode of, you know, October 7th, October 8th. So I see all these polls, too, that show absolute public disgust with Bibi Netanyahu. Um, yeah. I saw one that was like only 8% of people wanted him to remain as prime minister of Israel. Um, but it's not like, as evidenced by the other poll we just talked about, it's not like the objection to him is you're going too far, the brutality, the number of civilians and children and women that are being bombed, the destruction of northern Gaza, so it's effectively uninhabitable. Like, that's not the critique. Can you break down for us the sort of flavors of the dissatisfaction with Netanyahu and where it comes from? I think um, he's seen as a prime minister who cut a I mean, first of all, his approval was quite low already in the run-up uh, to the war. Uh, you know, since um, since the beginning of the year, there have been relentless uh, mass protests against the judicial reform. He's seen as, um, I think, broad, in broad strokes, he's seen as a grifter who's been in power for too long, is corrupt, is trying to um, wreck um, Israeli democracy. To, for his personal gain, his personal survival, and for the benefit of his political allies. And the fact that Israeli democracy is very limited and not at all, you know, not even all citizens of Israel enjoy it equally and certainly not all people under Israeli control, uh, that doesn't mean that people feel any less passionately about it and that they hate Netanyahu any less for messing with it. So he's already comes into this very weak, but one of the cards he does have is, well, I kept Israel safe. Um, Israel has never been in a better position militarily. The conflict, you know, kind of like there is the occasional attack. There was um, uh, there was the group, the Lions Den in the West Bank, who are staging some uh, occasional shooting sprees, but it's still nothing compared to the uh, Second Intifada. 
and then over 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 the course of one horrific day or you know in maybe two or three horrific days this was completely wiped out so he's now seen as someone who is destroying the Israeli democracy, damaging the Israeli economy, and presiding over the absolute worst security failure in Israeli history. There is no coming back from that for him. So I want to get back to the judicial reforms in a second, because I'm curious about that as well. But I want to ask you, um, you mentioned something which I think is probably true, that this sets uh, the peace process or whatever remnants there was of a peace process, it sets it back quite a bit. what do you think would happen in a situation where uh, the U.S. sort of looked at this situation, said, all right, we think Israel's going way too far in its response and you're breeding more hatred towards Israel and more Hamas members. What if the U.S. were to effectively pull the ripcord and basically tell Israel, uh, no, you're going to sit down and we're going to figure this out? And, I, you know, the details are debatable. We could talk about potentially the notion of the Palestinian Authority taking over Gaza, et cetera. But like— do you, what do you think would happen? What would Israel's reaction be in a situation where the U.S. pulls the ripcord, says, look, money and arms, we're cutting them off. We're going to we're going to sit down and figure this thing out. Mm. I think, like, it, it depends which Israel and who's in power. Um, if it's if it's Netanyahu, the first thing will happen is that nothing will happen. There is going to be significant breaking distance, you know, kind of like this. Any war machine is actually quite difficult to stop once once it gets going, and Israel will definitely try to procrastinate and delay and ignore and pretend that the phone isn't working or kind of like uh, literally kind of like we kind of like our forces are there. We kind of like we can't tell them to stop now. I think um, then it depends what America will concretely come with. Like, you, you know, kind of like if they just say, "Okay, stop," unilateral ceasefire in your behalf. Israeli would find it difficult to stomach, and I I don't think that America would come with that anyway uh, for its own domestic political reasons, and also because it knows it wouldn't work. And uh, I'm sure that one thing that the Biden White House or any White House want to look like is that they are, um, that they're weak and they don't have control over um, an ally that depends on them so much militarily. Um, So if they came and said, if they came and said, okay, let's have a more extended ceasefire, further exchange of hostages, uh, we will create an off-ramp for um, the Hamas military leadership to leave Gaza, like Arafat left Beirut in the 80s when the Israelis invaded, I think that might be uh, more effective, but probably under a different prime minister. Mm. I think so that I- was very, yeah, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, it gets to the core question, which is being debated right now, which is how much say does the U.S. actually have? And there are all these quotes from, you know, former military officers and prime ministers are basically like, it matters a lot, right? They are, you know, intimately involved in all of this. We need the weapons. We need the diplomatic cover. Like, the president of the United States is the one audience that we really have to care about. But what do you make of that? I mean, what is your sense of putting aside Netanyahu, Biden, et cetera, in general— how much sway and influence does America operate with in these conflicts? I mean, tremendous, but it just depends on how it's deployed. Uh, I don't think we've seen in many, many years um, the ripcord being pulled on on Israel in any significant way. It's not kind of like, it's just not something that's in the operating system of the relationship between the two countries. Uh, I think there is very significant leverage, and um, I think that the U.S. should be 
applying it more, uh, but I don't think it can just snap its fingers and uh, make it stop. And if it would, it would look like it's, uh, it would put both Israel, especially in the US, in a very weak position worldwide. And obviously, kind of like this is also something that um, the US is thinking about very much is where it, not only where does this position us vis-a-vis Israel or in the Middle East, but globally, what does that mean about us as this whole thing, this whole mess? Right. What does it mean about us as a superpower? If it wasn't Netanyahu, so from an outsider looking at uh, the various top officials and the comments that they've made about the conflict, um, if it wasn't Netanyahu, would we be talking about Naftali Bennett again? Would we? It would would it be Yair Lapid? Like, and and what are the real differences between if it's not Netanyahu, the other potential options? I think the main difference is that they don't have a personal stake in this war. Um, continuing. It's not not only in the sense like um, Netanyahu obviously is trying to stay in power for as long as possible um, and he would be out the door very quickly once and will be out the door very quickly once the war is finished. Um, but, um, you know, but leave aside the judicial reforms, the corruption trial and all of that. Um, the war happened, started on his watch. Uh, he wants to bring it to the conclusion that he envisions. And um, Gantz or Lapid, who be, would be the likeliest successors, are not as wedded to this project and would see they would be much more open to various offerings. What do you think? So there's been a real resistance from Netanyahu to talk about the quote day after conversation, right? The Biden administration is pushing. They want the Palestinian Authority to take control, which is not a great idea either. But there aren't a lot of great ideas at this point. You had this uh, report, I think, strategically leaked the trial balloon of like, let's just do the whole ethnic cleansing and just completely um, push people out into the Sinai Desert or use our leverage with Egypt to force them to take people in or use the uh, pressure the U.S. to use their aid dollars to get surrounding countries to take in the refugee population. There was a report recently, Netanyahu was getting one of his top aides to come up with plans to quote unquote, thin out the Gaza population. What is your sense of what most uh, Israeli Jews actually want to see happen? Or is there much thought about that at this point? I don't think there's much thought about that. There is kind of like in the in, in the polls, there is, um, there is a position to various options. Uh, you know, the very, I think only about eight or ten percent want the Palestinian Authority to take over. Um, and but like long-term thinking is not has never been Israel's mo anyway, and certainly not in the middle of a war. So they just want. It's much more. It's very simplistic. We want Hamas defeated. Uh, we want Gaza to be uh, to no longer pose a threat. Um, I don't think I haven't seen polling on the question of pushing the Palestinians out to Sinai, um, but um, there's certainly considerable support for the IDF um, staying in Gaza on an open-ended occupation and higher support than I thought there would be for actually rebuilding some of the settlements that Israel evacuated in 2005, which would be an absolutely dreadful idea in, from every possible perspective. Are there any? Israeli politicians who are close to the levers of power, or at least that have the ear of the prime minister and others, that has a genuine interest in trying to revive this uh, idea of a two-state solution? Or was the last one who had any real effort in that direction Ehud Barak, which was quite a while ago? Yeah, not, not, much, not much of an effort that was either. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think 
I don't think so. I don't think anyone is really talking about um, any, and I don't think anyone with any prospect of gaining power in Israel is interested in um, reviving Oslo. Um, you would see people drop hints that we need a diplomatic path as well, um, but it's very vague. And then kind of like, even when you talk about a two-state solution, what does that actually mean? Does that mean a genuinely independent Palestinian state, which probably wasn't on the table even during Oslo? Right. Does it mean some sort of puppet regime or regimes um, that kind of like that we can pretend um, that they will solve the conflict and they actually won't? Um, there isn't like there isn't much appetite, and it's not. It's also just not an issue that really comes up in Israeli politics very often. Um, you know, no major party ran on a two-state platform in many, many, many election cycles. That's it's sort of incredible for me to think about. And I've seen these um, this data also that shows Israel, I believe, is the only developed country in the world where the young population is more reactionary right wing than the older population. What accounts yeah. for those shifts? I think um, to a large extent, it's simply that one of the results of both the first intifada the first Intifada, Oslo, and the second Intifada, and everything that happened since has been increased separation between Israelis and Palestinians. It's nearly hermetic. Mm. Um, Israelis, you know, I grew up in Jerusalem during the Oslo years, and I've met precisely, I think, up, up until second Intifada began and I became uh, active politically, I don't think I've met, I've met one or two Palestinians in my entire life. And I lived in Jerusalem, where wow. you know, half the population is Palestinian. Uh, and wow, my family was uh, on the left. Um, so, you know, you m most people, most Israelis see Palestinians as only uh, their adversaries in the conflict. Uh, they see kind of like the mental imagery is, um, you know, um, shooting and bombing attacks and uh, children in Gaza handing out candy to celebrate those attacks and so on and so on. Um, so, you know, kind of like the further you get from a generation that actually had any sort of interaction mm. with um, with Palestinians, the more radical it's going to get. Because while we had, under Netanyahu, we certainly had a kind of a cold peace. We definitely didn't have re-engagement. Um, it is interesting to see, though, that the Palestinian minority within Israel is becoming more and more present in public life. And actually, public space is much more permeable now to Arab culture, Arab language than it was before. Like you, the fact that you have like, um, um, you have the uh, light rail in Jerusalem, which is a very controversial project from the perspective of two states, because it links East and Occupied East Jerusalem um, to the West, but it also has um, signs in Arabic and loud announcement announcements in Arabic um, on every train station, including in majority Jewish neighborhoods. Um, and this is something that was completely unthinkable to me when I was growing up in Jerusalem. That's, Arabic was not in the public space at all, like maybe mm. street names. And even those would be graffitied over very often. So let me ask you this. What is the Israeli population's reaction to the illegal settler project in the West Bank? I'm curious what what the, the common sentiment is around that? I think it's kind of like it's in flux. I think, um, you know, during the Oslo years and into the um, Second Intifada, 
the um, settlers were seen as a bunch of um, loony goons with uh, machine guns, and um, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of secular uh, snobbishness towards religious people in Israel because there is this whole conflict about either, are we Jewish or democratic, are we a secular Jewish state, are we going to be ruled by rabbis, and so on, and so on. And so settlers definitely fell on the wrong way side of that to much of the Israeli public. In the 20, in the almost 20 years since the Second Intifada was crushed, um, settlers have become um, also much more present in Israeli society, much more visible, much greater political power. They've increased in numbers. Um, it's become much more normalized to live in a settlement. I think by now many, many Israeli Jews will have friends or relatives or somebody they know from work or from their military service who lives in a settlement. And under Netanyahu, the economy was also such that to get like, to get your average, say, American suburban quality of life of like, you know, kind of like a bungalow uh, with a garden um, in a quiet neighborhood, you can almost only get that in settlements. Um, mm. you, there's no way most people couldn't afford that in mainland Israel. Wow. So, yeah. And on the other hand, it's all kind of like, A, this kind of like um, semi-sectarian divide between the secular and the religious is still very, very present. And the settlers' reputation actually took a serious blow in this war because um, of persistent reports that much of the Gaza Brigade was redeployed to the West Bank because of the um, trouble the settlers were causing there. So there is also kind of like a lot of Israelis feel that settlers are to blame in more than one way for what happened on that day. So clearly the um, the sort of Netanyahu doctrine really failed on October yeah. 7th, right? The idea, I control the height of the flame, we should build up Hamas basically as a yeah. counterweight and to make sure that there's never any sort of Palestinian statehood and to keep Gaza and the West Bank divided. Um, the idea that, you know, this was any sort of guarantee of safety for Israelis has now looks, you know, completely preposterous. But what do you think comes after that, right? Is it, you know, a further shift to the right of like, now we've got to do security even harder. We have to do oppression even harder than previously. Or is it a, a rethinking of some of the core assumptions of what is almost inevitably going to happen when you're keeping millions of people, you know, locked in an open air prison? Yeah, I think it's like, I think it's definitely the more natural direction for Antignan from much of the Israeli political establishment is the former. Is yeah. like we, we can just we need more security. We need, uh, you know, a more refined occupation machine. Kind of like you know, oh, so kind of like defense failed. So we need to build a wall. Uh, maybe we need some kind of, or kind of like we're bringing a peacekeeping force into Gaza, an international one. If someone will take this on, um, I think there is also I I'm you know I'm expected a much more ferocious response from the Israeli public opinion. Uh, even like after smaller attacks, the kind of like the, the chatter on social media gets pretty, pretty intense. Um, often I would even, I would say probably genocidal, just in terms of the comments people are leaving. I think here there was, I think the, sh the shock and the grief um, and the, just the disorienting surprise of being so thoroughly routed on that first day um, stopped people from going all the way in that direction, and also the fact that it happened on the, under the most right-wing government in Israeli history. And there was a poll uh, in the first week after the war, or maybe two weeks, that said that people actually would prefer a center-left government uh, and would feel more secure under that. Now, obviously, center-left in Israel is hard-right anywhere else, and 
what people understand under center left in this context is not entirely clear, but it's it's the first time I um I remember Israeli public opinion shifting even remotely um to towards the center hmm. uh, wartime. Um I think there is definitely I think there is opportunity to rethink. It's it's not going to happen right now when the war is is going on, but I think there is it's definitely this is definitely a big wake up call. Um I would argue not just to Israelis. Um I think the the separation in which neither in which both sides I think imagine that it's possible to exist without encountering the others daily. Um, we've seen October 7 is one result of that, both in the sense Israel locked up Gaza and try and tried to forget that it exists. But also the um, you know Hamas were um, Hamas were evidently also not thinking about the idea of um, of sharing historic Palestine uh, with Israelis because you don't do that. Um, you don't attack civilians in this manner if you want to um, to have any kind of shared existence. You do it only if you if this is not a factor in your calculations. I think Israelis. I think if Hamas actually stayed on military targets. Uh, there would still be a very, very serious uh, backlash and Israel will still react militarily, but, you know, we've had, it would be more comparable to the 1973 war, which is the last time Israel was so thoroughly routed. Uh, but then after that war, we had uh, and still have a long-lasting peace with Egypt and there's very li little rancor. Like nobody growing up in Israel never heard anybody talk badly about the Egyptians because I think it was understood that this was a war, soldiers fought, soldiers killed, um, and even even though also there there were um, you know the Egyptians didn't take hostages they took prisoners of war and sometimes these prisoners endured torture and came back months and months and months later there was still not that much ill will um, and I think that one of the one of the questions that should be asked about 2048 is do we want to be in the same country and maybe all of us across the spectrum from peace activists to military and paramilitary movements need to start thinking about what, um, you know, even if we deploy violence, what kind of violence has better chances of being forgiven in the future? Hmm. Um, it, that, that assumption. Yeah, to your point, is is anybody making the argument that this kind of a reaction breeds more Hamas, as in it breeds more Palestinian militant hardliners who are committed to revenge? Because I think your point on... Uh, Israeli civilians being killed, hardening mm -hmm. the Israeli population to say, oh, now now it's on. It, it works in the reverse way, too. So is anybody making that argument? Because it kind of reminds me of like what the U.S. did in the Middle East, going after al-Qaeda, breaking the region, and then later on, what rose out of the ashes? ISIS, which everybody mm -hmm. sort of views as even worse than al-Qaeda. So is yeah. there any grappling with that fact that maybe you're uh, creating a, a stronger, bigger Hamas? Absolutely, and this is this is one critique that is being made very frequently in the media by commentators, um, even I think by some politicians. Although politicians tend to like align themselves more, um, you know, kind of like um, to the flag during wartime. Um, I don't think so. Basically, and the argument basically goes like, look at these uh, kids in Gaza. How do you kind of like? How do you think they're going to? Uh, grow up feeling about Israel, like if uh, Hamas at least was kind of like an organization with a clear agenda structure and so on, so on, we may well get something even worse. And indeed, by the way, like Hamas's main opponents within Gaza for many years have been kind of like these proto-ISIS groups 
that are uh, you know even 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 more militant and have much more of a much a much more nihilistic approach. Um, now, I think I have I haven't heard any Israeli politician in power or in reach of power actually address that question. Um, there is kind of like you know one of the hypothetical future scenarios that are being thrown around is like well. DPA will take over, or maybe we'll get Egypt to run Gaza, or maybe we'll get the Emirates to run Gaza, or maybe some combination of all the above, and then there's going to be a lot of money, and we're going to build these new high-rises, uh, and maybe then people won't want to uh, fight us, and that's obviously incredibly politically naive. Um, but there isn't there isn't deep thinking about... Mm. Kind of like about what... what yeah. Yeah. That's post 9-11 to a T, yeah. Is all of the blame uh, for October 7th for, like, the intelligence and security failures that led to October 7th, is that all falling on Netanyahu's shoulders, or is it more broadly shared? I'm thinking of—I just read a report about how there was some um, warnings before the music festival that, of course, turned into the site of horrific slaughter, um, that the IDF knew that this was a possibility, but they warned no one. And then it was hours and hours before anyone showed up to help them. The organizers for that music festival said, if we had had even an hour notice, we could have safely evacuated everyone. You know, there's reports that uh, the Netanyahu government had access to the October 7th plan more than a year in advance, but they just sort of thought it was aspirational and, and wrote it off. So where is the blame for those failures being placed right now? I think overwhelmingly on Netanyahu. Uh, alongside that, you have um, Netanyahu himself hinting sometimes very crassly that he was misled, that that was incompetence on part of the intelligence of the military leaders. Um, he, on one occasion, he even had to apologize publicly, which he hardly ever does, um, and kind of like reiterate that he supports the army and so on and so on. But it's... Um, it's quite clear that Netanyahu is not thinking about resigning after the war. He's thinking about setting up a committee of inquiry that will last forever. And, mm. Delay, um, delay, delay. Delay, 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 and will probably place a lot of the blame on the uh, kind of like on the um, military uh, intelligence and generally the the army and the security services, which of course is you know kind of like it's 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 Netanyahu's responsibility, obviously. Another more alarming um, development is kind of the uh, conspiracy theories about traitors. Now, we have seen a report in The Guardian that some of the maps that Hamas used when they attacked military bases were so detailed, they probably had access to inside information, whether via hacks or indeed via some human source. But from day one, there was, uh, you know, there were like doctored photographs or unrelated pictures being circulated in social media saying like, basically that the um, the overall narrative is that the uh, the protesters, the the people who are protesting the judicial reform somehow helped Hamas mm. stage this. Uh, not least because the, uh, the kibbutzim themselves are traditionally center left. Uh, and some of them are like, there were definitely people there who were... Um, even what can be called radical left. Uh, I mean, there were definitely radical left activists among the victims. Um, so that kind of like became a narrative and part of a small hardcore uh, fans of Netanyahu that it's uh, the leftist stabbed us in the back. Um, it's not it's not catching on, um, but it's still going on. Um, just yesterday, there was a photograph of 
um, a group of hostages being taken, and there was a guy um, in kind of like in the background who whose face originally was pixelated by Hamas to release to re release the photo originally, and um, someone doctored the face of an aged uh, European-looking man onto that pixelated face and started spreading it kind of like, who is this guy? He looks Ashkenazi, Jewish, meaning lefty. And why is mm. he walking along? And, and so on, so on, so on. So like, it's, um, I, I wouldn't say a big proportion of the Israeli population believes it, but I also find it alarming that there has been little condemnation from the government of these rumors. So evidently, Netanyahu and, and his people think it's kind of like it helps deflect the anger, which is very so dangerous. This is like the equivalent of the the conspiracy theories that it was like Antifa really behind January 6th. It's sort of like yeah. the equivalent of that. Well, I wasn't aware that that was well, the theory yeah. that was spreading. I, we, I saw the report about the insider trading, like the mm -hmm. massive trades that happened in the days before October 7th and the speculation of who that might have been. But I had no idea about the connection to that particular conspiracy theory. Yeah. So can I, let me ask you about... Um, Netanyahu's governing coalition. Can you tell mm. everybody who are the other parties in his governing coalition? And is he feeling pressure from the people to his right, like Ben Gavir, for example, to be even more hawkish? Yeah. So his main coalition partners are indeed Ben Gavir and uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who are very, 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 very far right. Um, then you have the, um, and then, then you have the um, uh, ultra-Orthodox parties who are Traditionally, like for many years, they were actually quite apolitical or even to the left. They have their own sets of issues and they mostly go into politics to address those issues. You know, uh, they um, they were at the table during the Oslo Accords, and um, but they have been moving um, further and further to the right, um, both the politicians and I would say many of the uh, ultra-Orthodox communities. And then now you also have Benny Gantz's party. Uh, so it's a very, very right-wing government. Netanyahu traditionally um, stayed in power by playing off, by bringing both centrists and the far right into government and playing them off against each other. And, you know, going to the left and saying, look, we're all dolls here, but these kind of like, these these guys are going to wring my neck. Um, so can we please kind of like, can you please stay with me in government and keep Israel safe? And then he would go to the right and say, basically, uh, I'm a, as much a patriot as you guys, uh, but like, and these lefties are pushing me in the other direction. Kind of like, please stay in government, and you know the usual divide and conquer stuff. This is the first government that he leads that is entirely far right, and that happened because he's been in power for so long. He kind of warped Israeli politics around him. Like, you don't really have left and right in Israel anymore. You have pro Netanyahu and anti Netanyahu, mm. really. Interesting. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, so, so to, to, your, sorry, to your question, yes, he's very much under pressure from people to his right, but not in the sense that he thinks that if there will be a new election, they'll beat him. They still, they don't have that kind of support in Israeli politics. It's just a question of like keeping the government together and not going to the election. That's why he needs them on board. Interesting. The um, the piece about how he himself has become such a central dividing line in politics is Trump. also very... Trump. That's Trump. Yeah, same that's thing. the central mm -hmm. question in American politics. Are you with Trump? Or are you against Trump? And that's it. So that's wild to see that that's uh, the same thing in Israeli politics. Give people a sense when you say, you know, Ben Gavir, they're very far right. 
Like, what does that mean? Lay out for people a little bit more of that. What would their views be on the West Bank? What their, would their views be on this war? What would their views be on the future of Gaza? Oh, very bleak. I mean, the, uh, the, overall, the overall attitude is that we should put, it ranges from, uh, you know, just finish the job we started in 48, meaning spill everybody, or um, offer uh, Palestinians the choice between uh, pledge of allegiance to the state, um, uh, voluntary emigration or expulsion. That's basically their attitude. Uh, Smotrich even wrote, uh, a pretty kind of like a pretty thorough, detailed, and actually very practical uh, paper uh, a few years ago, saying like it's wrong to say that the conflict can't be solved. Here's how we solve it. Um, and now he's finance minister. Um, and Ben Gvir is really kind of like he is a street thug um, of a, a bully, kind of like the, the kind of guy who gets into fights at protests and the kind of guy who vandalizes. Um, and, and threatens people. Um, he is much more, how would I describe him? He's much more of like a, a, a Duterte, like the president of the Philippines, or, you know, um, or Duterte, Bolsonaro. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, or, or Bolsonaro, kind of like, you know, kind of like big mouth, um, kind of like mob-like attitudes mm. of, uh, promoting his supporters and trying to ride roughshod over institutions and so on. In some ways, I think he is, you know, he's doing a lot of damage now. I think he's potentially less dangerous. Like a lot of people who, you know, like, I don't know, Stephen Bannon, um, people who go in, radicals who go into the system saying like, we're going to take over. And because they don't understand how the system works, uh, they actually fail. Um, Ben Gvir has been trying to reform Israeli police to move people around and so on and so on and to like clamp down on the protests. He hasn't succeeded so far. He's doing more of what he wanted uh, under the fog of war, but I think Smotrich is the, the the smarter one and the more dangerous one. Interesting. Um, I, I do want to come back to the uh, judicial reforms. So, and you're gonna you're gonna need to break this down for everybody. But my sense of it was Netanyahu wanted to do these judicial reforms, take power away from the Supreme Court, do what many have called, uh, you know, more of an authoritarian approach to government. Um, and the Israeli population seemingly uh, rejected this wholesale. There were giant uh, protests against it. So. What's your sense of how much that weakened him going into this conflict? And what's your sense of the population's uh, feelings around the judicial takeover now? Um, I haven't seen polling specifically about the judicial takeover, but I think that the uh, opposition is very much undiminished. Um, so the the protests were completely unprecedented. I think like in the, in the US, something like that would look like tens of millions uh, on the streets. Wow. Um, it was also... It was really fascinating to see a society reimagining itself uh, because, you know, Israeli democracy, as I mentioned earlier, is obviously very, very partial. Palestinians are severely discriminated and half the population under Israeli control has no voting rights at all. Um, but people were actively trans trying to transform the Israeli democracy in the, into the democracy they imagined. So there was a lot of solidarity, a lot of mutual aid. And a lot of um, opening up to conversations with uh, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, because um, kind of, kind of in in a way of like the enemy, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
because um, they're protesting the far-right government uh, that is um, uh, attacking the Palestinian minority, they were the protesters became much more aware of the problems that the Palestinian minority is facing. You towards the end of or like towards the hiatus in the protests that was caused by the war, you already had Palestinian politicians and speakers from Palestinian towns speak at these protests to mass applause and so on and so on. Uh, you know, this is while also the protests are very careful to position themselves as uh, center-right on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. They were also trying to, um, they were also kind of like began organically developing these links um, that go beyond what we've seen um, previously. Um, I think the uh, the protests will resume uh, as soon as the war is over, and I think this is, you know, one reason Netanyahu wants to. I don't think he wants. I don't know what he wants. Like he uh, he acts like he wants to either continue this emergency situation indefinitely, and we hear ministers saying this is going to go on for years. Um, but we also um, we we also know that he will probably, if he actually gets to the Hamas military leadership, that's probably where this will stop. But either way, as soon as this stops, I think the process will resume, and um, and he'll be out. Mm. Uh, lastly, Jimmy, to, to wrap up sort of where we began with uh, your vision for your Substack 2048 and uh, the hope and aspiration of what things could look like a generation for, from now, you know, what do you hope it would look like? And what do you think are any like kernels of optimism for what could ultimately lead you there? Well, I would hope that we are all sharing the same country. Um, I would hope that there are many, many, many personal uh, familial, collegial, you name it, the relationships between Israelis and Palestinians up and down the land, regardless of the political system that um, that comes into place. And I think that we can't, you know, we can't create a democratic state overnight. We two-state solution, even if it's remotely possible, it's also not going to happen overnight. But these relationships need to start um, getting built. Um, I think what makes me optimistic. Um, I think again, I saw. A very real, like the first few days after the war, I thought this is like Israel is going to go full, like, you know, Putin and Grozny, totally demolish Gaza from afar, um, drive people in Sinai. Um, and that didn't happen for a variety of reasons. So it's already kind of like, you know, it's hard. What's going on is absolutely horrific, but it's, I thought it was going to be even worse. Another thing that makes me optimistic is that there has been a lot of interesting moments of this cross-community solidarity, even during October 7th, of like um, Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel risking their lives to save somebody from the other community. And we've heard many, many stories of that. And since that, we've, you know, we have um, Palestinian and Israeli doctors working together and in hospitals to treat wounded. Um, I know that Israeli um, Israeli doctors have been trying to do what they can to try and help uh, people in Gaza in different ways. Um, I think there is there is an, there is a more of a cross community fabric than might seem right now, and that definitely mm -hmm. gives me. So, I I have to follow up a little bit because this is a topic I'm fascinated in, and I just want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, so you support a one-state solution over a two-state solution. I've been s split between the two. I would need to read more to get a real uh, ironclad perspective on it. But if, if you support a one-state solution over a two-state solution, is it your sense that it would be 
binational or would it, would it be called Israel or Palestine or Israel Palestine and and how would that work in terms of um, you know you had the occupation you had the apartheid etc but would there have to be like quotas of Palestinians and Israelis in positions of power I'm just curious about the dynamics of in your mind how a one state solution would play out I think like um, I think there are many many answers to these questions um, I obviously probably you know uh if if pushed i would probably come up with some kind of like version of a solution that i think might work but i don't think that's really what's important right now like there have been so many people like me you know uh white approaching middle-aged dudes who kind of like sit down and say well i've i've just written a book that's going to solve the conflict i don't think that's what's needed i think what's needed is building these community bridges and starting to tease out what can communities actually um continents uh, what kind of you know what kind of future do they find acceptable to themselves and desirable for their children and work away our, our way up from that because one state is as i think your question indicates is just so unimaginable that um you can just say oh well i'd like a one state solution but communities will never accept it but we don't even know what communities can actually live with um i think we need to start building building up from that um, there's lots of interesting writing on each of the aspects that you, uh, that you mentioned, but, um, I don't, I don't think that just kind of like creating, creating a program out of the blue is, uh, is where we should begin. And what leads you to prefer, like, what are sort of the core values that lead you to prefer one state direction versus a, a two state direction, both of which let's be frank at this exact moment seem completely impossible. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, on one level, it's just practicability. I don't see anything resembling what is commonly understood as a two-state solution being remotely possible. And that's after we've been trying for, um, uh, for, I don't know, 40 years now. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny that people say one state is kind of like, it's completely impractical, but we've been trying to make two states happen, uh, for getting close to half a century and it hasn't worked and arguably things got worse. So maybe we can give the other thing uh, a try. Um, I think broadly speaking, um, I think there is much in common between the two communities. Uh, I think the very same things that um, make us see them as mutually exclusive are also shared experiences. Um, I think that it's entirely possible to build systems that channel ethno-nationalist conflicts into more constructive than destructive avenues. And I'm using this kind of like elaborate language because I think that talking about the solution to begin with is a bit setting us up to ourselves up to fail. I don't yeah. think these conflicts ever end. It's just a question of um of how much of how how they how they run. And I think you know there are examples Northern Ireland comes first and foremost to mind of very, very vicious conflict uh, where people arguably per capita, there were more casualties than in Israel-Palestine um, that set up a consociational state where they, so instead of separating, they decided to come closer together, postponing some of the um, the more emotive questions, uh, such as, you know, kind of like, is, Ireland, is Northern Ireland going to be part of the Republic of Ireland, part of the UK? but engaging a lot of others. Um, I think it's, um, I, I, I just don't think, think it's as impossible as um, 
as people seem to believe. Yeah. But that said, that said I think there is there does need to be under kind of like we need to start working on the assumption that neither community is going anywhere. Yeah, one of the best arguments I heard for the one state is uh, that there already is one state there, right? So, mm -hmm. like, it already is a one-state reality. The question is, what do you actually do in terms of the policy of it? And obviously, you know, ending the occupation, ending the apartheid-like conditions, I mean, that's, you know, that's step one and seemingly relatively straightforward, and you could iron out the details from there. Thank you so much. This was very enlightening. Yeah, this conversation absolutely. was great. So helpful Thank to get your perspective, Jimmy. Thanks, Lucia. Yeah, our pleasure. All right. So, yeah, that was a very interesting um, conversation to me. I, you know, I, I read a lot about the conflict, cover a lot about the conflict, but that's real macro foreign policy perspective type picture. Whereas it's nice to get uh, what's the domestic view? You know, like what are people in Israel saying on the ground in yeah. regards to this? How are they processing this? What is the news they're getting day to day? How do they actually view Netanyahu? What are the critiques they have? Like his and his feel for the different characters. Because you know, we can read about Ben Gavir and we can read about Smotrich, but to get the flavor of like, oh, well, this one's like sort of like a street thug. This one's more intelligent. Very, very helpful for understanding some of the nuances of this conflict and why things are unfolding as they are. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, everybody, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. You could always go on Substack and sign up, pay five bucks a month. You get the video of every interview and you get it a day early. Everybody else could sign up. Uh, for free and then they get the audio version of the podcast a day later usually on saturdays and that's all we got for you guys we love you all and we'll talk to you next week